Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2? We're continuing our study in this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And we're going to pick it up here and look at verses 1 to 7 this morning. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our journey through this letter that has been so rich and so um, so deep in terms of what it talks about and the implications of it. God, would you just open our eyes again to see the wonder of what you have for us here. Help us to understand what Paul is writing about when he talks about our lostness or what it means to be a people who have been saved by grace and who now live in Christ and to get a glimpse of what you have in store for us in the future. God, may these truths just penetrate our heart and change the way that we live and look at life. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college at Moorhead State, I was involved with a student ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, and that's actually where Gail and I met. And during those years in college, we grew in our faith. And one of the things that we had the opportunity to do during that time as a ministry is we would send out teams of students to local churches where we would sing or share the gospel or give a message, you know, whatever they wanted us to do. And it was always really fun to have those opportunities to go out and minister. And when um, I realized, you know, that we were going to be doing these kinds of things, I really wanted to have a a team of students go to my home church. I'd grown up in a Lutheran church in Warren, about 100 miles north of Moorhead. Uh, There was also an evangelical covenant church there that had had a very positive influence in my life. And I wanted us to go back and have this opportunity to share the gospel. So I made arrangements for that. And on a cold Sunday morning in January, you know, three cars started out heading north on this journey to speak at our church that Sunday morning. And on the way, uh, just south of Crookston, Minnesota, we were involved in a very serious car accident. We were going along, you know, Sunday morning, no traffic hardly on the road at all, and we're zipping along, and south of Crookston, I saw what looked to me like two snowmobiles going, you know, in the ditch and kicking up snow, and it was blowing across the road, and it was a scene I had seen many times before. And so I thought we would just kind of drive right through it, you know, kind of like a cloud of snow drifting across the road. We'll go in and out of it quickly, but as soon as I drove into it, I realized something was wrong. This is very, very different. It didn't clear. 
And I remember seeing out of the corner of my eye, you know, in this snow-covered situation, an oncoming car come and pass on the left-hand side, and then immediately after that were the bright orange and yellow stripes of the back of a snowplow truck. A snowplow truck that probably weighs something like 59,000 pounds and then loaded as well, and we hit the back of that going about 50 miles an hour. You know, there were no lights that I saw. The snow was so thick. We saw no warning lights, nothing from the snowplow. I mean, the others that were in the car with me, too, we thought, yeah, it looks like snowmobile drivers out in the morning. We're just going to zip right on through. Probably inexperienced driver. But we hit that thing, and we ended up, the car kind of crumpled. We were dead in the road, sitting at an angle across the driving lane. The car behind coming tried to take the ditch to avoid hitting us. It comes straight for us, but it managed to turn. It couldn't take the ditch, but it managed to turn, and it kind of slid right up against us at just the same angle and kind of just jostled our car. It was amazing that it wasn't more serious. If it had knifed into us, we could have easily been killed, and the car could have been really uh, maybe cut in two even by the blow. And then the third vehicle in the caravan was able to stop, and they got out, and it was amazing. Only one person was injured, one girl in the car I was driving, broke her leg. The rest of us were okay. The snowplow pulled ahead, stopped, called for the state trooper. They came, and what we managed to do was that one car was able to take some of the students and go on ahead to do the service in the morning, but the rest of us had to stay behind because they wanted to take us to the hospital and make sure we were okay. I was so disappointed. I thought, God, you know, I was so looking forward to having an opportunity to speak in my church and to be able to share and have my friends witness and share Christ. And it was just kind of disheartening. You wonder, why, God? Why was this? In fact, you know, it was only about a half mile ahead that if it had just been a little bit farther, there was a little bridge there and the snowplow would have pulled in the wing that was kicking the snow out in the ditch and we would have seen what it was and wouldn't have had the accident and could have gone on. Well, that night, we, had, we were all there for the service in the Evangelical Covenant Church and it was packed. And there were people who came from my home church to that evening service, and it was one of the most special services I've ever been a part of. I mean, there we were able to sing and share, and some knew that we had been in an accident and some not, but we were able to share the gospel. And it was one of those nights where the worship was so wonderful, it felt like there were angels singing in the rafters. I mean, it was just a special service where God moved in a powerful way. And when I thought back upon that service and how God worked in that situation, I would say this, that our worship of God was enhanced that night because we knew how close we had come to death. We knew that it could have been so much worse and only by the grace of God were we there and we wanted to praise him and give him the glory. And I would suggest that that same response should be ours when we come to this passage in Ephesians. Paul's going to talk about what our life was like before we met Christ and how lost we were. And then he's going to talk about what it means to be in Christ and our present relationship with him. And then he's going to give us, in verse 7, just a little glimpse of what our life is going to be like in the future with Christ. So we're going to walk through it. And let me begin by calling our attention to verses 1 to 3. Paul tells us, 
that before we met Christ, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Let me give you some definitions here. When the Bible uses the word transgressions, it is talking about our acts of obedience where we have broken God's law. We've overstepped the bounds. We've done what we should not have done and we knew it and we have gone against his command. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did, for example, in the Garden of Eden when God said, I have given you all of these beautiful, wonderful things to enjoy as gifts from me. There's just one thing I don't want you to eat from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat of it because the day you do that, you will die. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and that one thing that he had prohibited them from doing, they did. And they disobeyed God, and sin entered the world, and through sin came death, and all of the consequences that flowed from that. Transgression, crossing the line, breaking the rules, disobeying God. It's something all of us have done, and we know it. The word sin is the word hamartia in Greek that means missing the mark. It is falling short of God's standard of holiness. God is perfectly holy, and we are not. And when we look at our life and we look at what we see in the Scripture about God and His righteousness, His holiness, there's no way that we measure up. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's glory. We have missed the mark. And the reason for that is because we are spiritually dead. We are born spiritually dead. The life of God is not in us, and we are separated from Him. And sometimes we have a hard time believing that. We didn't feel dead before we met Christ. I mean, if you talk to somebody today who's not a believer, you know, and you think back on your life, you're going to go, you know, we were active. We felt alive. Physically, we were. We were alive in our bodies. We were using our minds to think. We were enjoying life and the things that we like to do and using our gifts and abilities. How can we be dead? And yet the Bible says that in that most important area of life, in our spiritual life, we are born spiritually dead. We are separated from God. In a sense, we're like spiritual zombies, if you will. We are the living dead because we have no relationship with God. And Paul is describing what life without Christ is like. And he would say things like, you know, we once we were blind to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. We did not see him as the savior of the world. We did not see God as our creator and maker. We denied that. We thought that we were here simply by time and chance, that somehow we had just come into this world. We were deaf to the Holy Spirit. We didn't hear his prompting. We were deaf to the gospel. We did not respond to that message, the good news about Jesus Christ. And we were happy to go our own way apart from God and just live as we please because we thought that's what life was about. And Paul, writing to these believers at Ephesus, said that's the way that all of us used to live at one time in our life. Before we came to know Christ, that was our attitude. And what were we doing? We were following the ways of this world. The world's values were our values. What the world said was important, we did. Or we enjoy, you know, acquiring possessions or living our life according to the pleasures that we wanted to pursue. 
That's the way it is in this world. And ultimately, we were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, even though we did not acknowledge it. Most people don't. But we were really following Satan, the devil, whom the Bible describes as the one who's the ruler over the kingdom of the air, this present world. And we were also following the cravings of our sinful nature. That word cravings is interesting. It's, it's taking normal, God-given desires and distorting them, twisting them, perverting them, making more of them than we should, heightening them. They become an idol in our life because we think that somehow by following them or achieving them, they're going to satisfy and fill the hole in our life. And we do that, don't we? Our world does that. It takes normal God-given desires for food or for drink or for love and for sex, for work and for pleasure, and it distorts them, and it makes that the aim of life is just to, you know, let's just pursue these things to the fullest. And, and we hope that that's going to fill this emptiness in our heart when only God can do that. And that's why I say we make an idol of those things, and we think that's what it's all about. And that's where we all were at one time. And as a result, not only were we dead, we were also objects of his wrath. Now, that's not a very pleasant thing to hear, is it? That we were objects of God's wrath. What does that mean? I mean, you know, sometimes people hear that. They hear the word wrath and they think, is God some kind of, you know, green-eyed monster up there that's trying to just look to see if you're out of line and is going to smash you or crush you and that's what he delights to do? Is that what wrath is? No, it's not. And I think even as believers, we need to understand that God's wrath is as necessary as his love God's wrath is as necessary as his holiness or his justice or all of his other attributes as well. In fact, they all work together. Because God is holy, God hates sin. He cannot approve of sin. Sin is a distortion of his good creation. It's an intrusion into this world that should not be there. And God is forever opposed to sin. And one day he will remove it. And because God is just, he must punish sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just ignore it and say, well, I guess that's okay. That's just the way people are and let it go. God, because he is just, must punish sin to satisfy the demands of his holiness and his justice. And he has provided a way to do that through Jesus Christ. But what Paul is emphasizing in verses 1 to 3 is just how lost we really are. I mean, it's interesting here, uh, he does in three verses what he takes three chapters to do in Romans, first three chapters that go through and, and end with that conclusion that no one is righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying here. And when you read it, you understand that we are even worse than we thought we were. We're worse than we thought we were. We were more lost than we thought. We were more separated from God and under his wrath. And every now and then, we even see those who don't know Christ. We see this observation made by people who have not yet come into a relationship with him, but recognize that there is something wrong with us and something wrong with our world. 
It was interesting, in a recent interview with Bill Murray, the actor, he was asked about his current eligible status as a bachelor. I guess he's single now. He had gone through a painful divorce in 2009. And Murray said it would be nice to be married again, nice to have a female companion for special events and to be part of your life. But he also admitted that he needs to work on himself first. And he said, there's a lot that I am not doing that I need to do. So that kind of, you know, caught the attention of the person doing the interview and they wanted to explore that a little bit more. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? And he reflected on, what stops us from looking into our own issues? And he said, well, what stops any of us, he said, is that we're kind of really ugly if we look really hard. You know, when we really look at ourselves, when we look at our heart, we're not as good as we think we are. Even as believers, don't you recognize that at times, even if you've known and walked with Christ for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, there are those times when in your mind you go, why did I just think that? Where did that come from? Or why did I do that? I thought I had grown past it. Why did I do that again? Or why do I, why do I struggle with the area of my life? And even as a believer, I think sometimes as believers, the more you grow in Christ, the more you become aware of your sinfulness and how fallen we are and how much we need God's grace. And here's an actor, Bill Murray, saying, you know what? We're not as wonderful as we think, and it's a little bit of a shock. It's hard. We're all fallen. We all need Christ. We are all lost. We are dead in our sins. But then Paul turns to tell us the good news. We may be worse than we think we are, but on the other side, God's grace is greater than we even imagine. That God made us alive with Christ. And those words, but God, that's the turning point. I mean, God did what only he could do. If he hadn't stepped into our situation, we would still be lost in our sins. But God did three things here that Paul tells us in these verses. He made us alive with Christ. When we place our faith in him, when we came to know Christ, we were born again spiritually, given new life. Christ comes to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and empowers us. Our eyes are open and we are quickened to the things of God. And not only did he make us alive in Christ, he also raised us up with Christ. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too we will rise again. And then thirdly, he tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's as though we are already there. I mean, even though physically we are here, spiritually it's a done deal because we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of us. That we have died with him and we have risen and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's awesome. That's amazing. When you think about our condition and how lost we were, we were as dead as Lazarus was in the tomb. Remember the story in John chapter 11 where Lazarus had fallen sick. And Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to come because they believed that if Jesus came, Lazarus could be healed. They believed Jesus had the power to do that. Whatever he wanted to do, he could do. 
And so they sent for him, and curiously, Jesus remains where he is a couple days before he sets out on that journey to see Lazarus. So by the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. Four days. And Mary and Martha are grieving and all of their loved ones that are there with them. And Martha's the one who comes to Jesus, you know, and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary comes, says the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why did Jesus wait? Why did he delay? Because there was something very powerful that he was going to teach in this miracle. We were like Lazarus. We were as dead as Lazarus was in that tomb. Lazarus was bound hand and foot by the grave clothes. We were bound by our sin. Lazarus was there for four days. We may have been dead in our sins for four years or 14 years or 40 years or more, whatever length of time it took before God brought us into a relationship with his son. Lazarus was closed in that tomb by a stone that was rolled against the opening and he was sealed in. We were closed in by our unbelief, locked in our sins. Lazarus was unable to save himself and so were we. Somebody else from the first service says, yeah, and Lazarus by four days was also stinking and we stink too in our, <laughs> in our sin. I mean, there's a lot of things you can look at here that are, are true in that comparison. We were worse than we thought. What a dead man needs is a resurrection. That's what Lazarus needed. And it's something that only God could do. And Jesus made that point when he said to Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? And then Jesus did something to demonstrate that that statement was true. He ordered that the stone be rolled away, and then he called in a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came to life. Jesus showed the power that he has. And that same power is the power that is at work in us today. It's the same power that in that great day in the future will bring to life all who have died in Christ. If God did not give us spiritual life, there would be no hope for any of us. We are saved by grace. But why did God do it? Why did he do it? Why did he not just abandon us? Why did he not just leave us and start over again or do it some other way? Paul answers that question here too. God saved us because of his great love for us. Love was the motivation. It's John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for us. I mean, that was the motivation in the heart of God. God created us. He longs to have a relationship with us. He sent his son to provide a way that that could be done. And God did it because he is rich in his mercy. He is compassionate. He is merciful, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. So God provided a way that we could be reconciled to him. And God provided a way that would also satisfy the demands of his holiness and justice. 
He did it by sending Jesus, who lived an absolutely sinless life, who fulfilled all the demands of the law, who satisfied God's command as our representative, and who then took our place when he died on the cross and bore our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, come into a relationship with God, and have eternal life. Love, mercy, grace, kindness, were the motives, the reasons that God gave his son to die for us. And when we understand that, God's grace changes us. One of the most powerful novels that I think has been written is the story Les Mis by Victor Hugo. It's a story that's familiar to us, a story of a convict, Jean Valjean, who was released from a French prison after serving 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. Can you imagine that? I mean, you just think about that. And you go, for stealing a loaf of bread, a man who was hungry did that, ends up in prison for 19 years of hard labor. The day comes when he is released and he goes to this small town nearby and no one is willing to give him shelter because he is an ex-convict. He's a, a felon, if you will. He is desperate. He's looking for some way to make a new life and no one's willing to take him in. And so he goes and he knocks on the door of the bishop. And Myriel, the bishop, takes him in and shows kindness to him. And how does Jean repay him? He steals his silverware. He's looking for something that maybe he could take to sell, to make some money or to buy some bread. And so he takes it and he runs off and he is arrested by the police who find him. They see the silverware, they put things together and they assume that he has stolen it. But Jean says, no, it was a gift. It was given to me as a gift. And when he is brought back to the bishop, the bishop agrees that it was a gift. And says to him, John, you forgot to take the candlesticks as well. And he gives him more, more than he deserved. That's grace. And he makes him promise that when he leaves, he will become an honest man, a man who is changed by grace. And Jean Valjean leaves. He changes his identity, he enters another town where he begins a manufacturing business that brings that town prosperity. And eventually he becomes the town's mayor. Grace is powerful. Grace is what we needed. And grace is what changes our life when we understand it. And that's what Paul wants us to see in these verses. That we were worse than we thought we were. Dead in our sins. But God's grace is better than we even imagined. And there is so much that he has to give us in this life but also then in the life to come. All of these blessings are ours in the present, but the full revelation will come in the future. And that's what he tells us and hints at in verse 7 when he says we will see the incomparable riches of his grace. Why did God do all of this? There is one more reason. We certainly didn't deserve it. But God saved us so that in the ages to come, he might show the incredible riches of his grace. There is more to come. There is so much more. In fact, it is so much more that it will take all of eternity to see it and appreciate it. 
God, who is infinite in his glory and majesty and creativity, is going to take all of eternity to unfold the unfathomable riches of his grace. I mean, I don't, I, I struggle with how do you even illustrate that? How do you share what that's going to be like? I mean, what, what we are going to see in the future that will go on and on and on. There will be work that we will do and we will use our gifts and there will be worship that we will do and there'll be relationships. But there's going to be these new wonders that will be made known every day. Closest picture, what comes to mind for me is when I think about, you know, I love to travel. I love to see the beauty of this world God has made. And probably my favorite trip of all was the trip that many of us went on together when we went to Israel a number of years ago. And I think of our guide drawer who every day would get on the bus and he'd ask us the question, are you ready for new wonders today? Today we're going to go to Mount Carmel and we're going to see the place where Elijah and the prophets of Baal had their confrontation and where God answered by fire. We're going to go to Megiddo, the place where that final battle is going to take place, the battle of Armageddon. That place where you can stand on Megiddo and you can look out at that valley below and hear Napoleon said all the armies of the world could gather. We're going to go and we're going to see the place in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Or we're going to see Galilee and, and we're going to go on the water in a boat and you're going to see what it was like for Peter and John and the fishermen to be on the Sea of Galilee or to see the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. And you're going to see those lilies of the field that he was talking about as an illustration. You're going to go to Capernaum today and you're going to see the place where Jesus performed more miracles than in any other city and yet they were so hardened they would not see and come to Christ. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to walk the streets that Jesus walked. We're going to stand on the Temple Mount. We're going to see the Mount of Olives, that olive grove that is still there that you can see where Jesus went with the disciples to pray. We're going to go and see the home of Caiaphas and we'll see the cell where Jesus was held before he went to the cross. And the Bible becomes alive and it's like there's just so many things here to see these new wonders. And in my mind, I think that's what heaven's going to be like. That's what eternity's going to be like when God in all his glory is going to reveal the manifold riches of his grace. And we'll see Jesus face to face We'll see the angels who have ministered to us that we have not known. We'll see the glory of God the Father. We'll have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll see the saints of old. And there'll be no end to the glories that God is going to reveal to us. Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. You see, what Paul is describing in Ephesians 2 here is the gospel in a nutshell. And verses 1 to 3 describe what our life was like without Christ. And as I said, in three verses, he basically takes what he does in three chapters in Romans to address. And in verses 4 to 6, he tells us what our life with, life, our life with Christ is like now in the present and how he has saved us and redeemed us. In verse 7, he shares this brief glimpse of what it's going to be like in the future in eternity. And then what we're going to look at next Sunday in verses 8 and 9 is how we are saved. And in verse 10, what we are saved for, the work that God has called each of us to do. It's a great journey. And we're just making our way through this letter that is so rich and so powerful. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're missing out. 
And today would be a great day for you to open your heart and come to know Christ and to say to him, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Would you come into my heart and be my Savior and Lord? I want to walk with you and I want to know you better in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, when I think about these wonderful truths that are shared here, I just stand in awe of you and of all that you have prepared for us. And I thank you for your grace. How can we not respond with worship and gratitude in our heart that you took those of us that were dead in our sins and you made us alive in Christ? And you did it so that we might see and enjoy the wonders of your grace so that we might be a witness in this world to help others to know you. And that we one day will spend all of eternity in your presence, free from sin, in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping and serving you forever. To you belongs all the praise and glory. Amen.